the optimal life. Dr. Schlesinger, welcome. So um, explain to us, what exactly is forensic psychology? Well, forensic psychology simply is the application of behavioral science to the law. It's as simple as that. The application of behavioral science to the law. I mean, in layman's terms, though, what does that mean? Well, that, that's a broad definition. And what forensic psychologists do is they evaluate um, criminal defendants, or it could be civil uh, litigants as well, and then apply the uh, evaluation to a particular legal standard, Miranda, competency to stand trial, state of mind at the time of the crime. A broader uh, view of forensic psychology is um, assisting in investigations and doing uh, research, particularly on criminal behavior. My particular area is extraordinary crimes, murder, and extraordinary crime. Mm. What did you do to win uh, 1990 Psychologist of the Year in New Jersey? How, how does that happen? Oh, that was, I was president of the New Jersey Psychological Association and did a number of things politically, having nothing to do with forensic practice or anything we're talking about today. Mm, okay, okay. Well, you're involved in a lot of different things. One thing that caught my eye was uh, you being in, on this committee where you kind of rewrote Megan's Law, I believe. Is that correct? Correct. Talk to us a bit about that. What exactly is Megan's Law, and then what was your input into it? Well, Megan's Law, uh, you know, is a New Jersey case, Megan Kanka. And uh, very simply, Megan Kanka was a five- or six-year-old child um, abducted by Jesse Timindaquas, who a neighbor who lived across the street, lured her with a puppy, sexually uh, uh, assaulted her. Now, he is a longtime pedophile in and out of prison. But because she lived across the street, he couldn't just let her walk back and tell her mother what happened because Taminda Quas know where he would wind up. So he wound up killing her. As a result of that, um, the legislature in New Jersey passed what's come to be known as Megan's Law, which is essentially uh, its community notification of registered sex offenders. And it came into being because Maureen Kanka, Megan's mother, said had I known that Tamindaquas, who lived across the street, was a sex offender, I never would have let Megan play in the street like all the other parents did. And so it's basically notifying people of that. Um, we wrote, we rewrote Megan's law. I was on the Senate task force that that did that because. In order to notify people, it became a very expensive process. You had to go um, house to house if you lived in a particular area of a sex offender, a, a radius of where he was. And you had to go in the evening because most people work during the day. And you had to bring a member of law enforcement and a social worker and an attorney as well to explain everything. It was costing the counties $100,000 a year in overtime. And so in order to get away from that, uh, Megan's Law was rewritten and it put sex offenders on the Internet. And um, that's basically and before we did that, though, we had a, a task force, which I was a member of, and we had uh, several community meetings and stakeholders gave their two cents. And so and I could tell you one interesting thing about about this that we weren't expecting. Who do you think? Let me ask you, who do you think what group was opposed to putting uh, the sex offenders on the Internet? Can you think offhand? I'm going to have to go with uh, the perpetrators themselves for a thousand, doctor. Yeah, well, we don't count those. Yeah, exactly. We don't count those. But we were shocked. It was the realtors. The, the realtors. realtors. Sure. Because if you're a realtor, sure. 
You want to sell a house where there's a sex offender down the street? You had took a $500,000 house and just paid it a $50,000. Who's going to buy a house with a sex offender down the street? So we were kind of shocked by that. And But there was a lot of other things that we learned uh, about this that... Um, that was very illuminating. The realtors don't want to be able to don't want to have to tell anybody that until that person is living across the street from themselves. Not not that necessarily the realtors don't want to tell anybody, but the homeowner before buying a house is going to do a little research in the neighborhood. And if they see a sex offender on their street, you've just reduced the price of the house and the realtor's commission. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But there are still things more important than commissions. Maybe not to everybody, but I, I do understand that from a realtor standpoint. Hey, right. that's a real tough one because yeah. you're talking about morality. You're talking about safety of the community, yet you're also talking about your livelihood. And just because someone is a registered sex offender, in fairness to those sex offenders, they have made mistakes. Not all of them are going to act out in some despicable way in the future. Is that is that fair to say? Well, yes, that is definitely fair to say, and it's way more complicated than just keeping locked up forever. It brings in many, many areas. It brings in juvenile offenders and uh, just a whole host of vigilanteism and just a whole host of other uh, of other things. That case that you talk about, and Megan's Law is now in all 50 states, correct? Well, correct. Megan's okay. Law is, and there's, there's a federal law, the Jacob Wetterling Law, that basically supersedes that as well. But it's basically the same thing. Notifying- same thing. You got to register. You got to notify and put notice out there. Correct. What makes somebody, you've been studying psychopaths, serial killers, despicable type human beings for a long time. Yes. So that case, the Megan's Law case, I recall seeing that. What year was that? Ninety. Two, I think 92, okay. 96, something like that. And, and there's been other cases similar where the guy, the creep across the street, kidnaps the child, keeps them locked in the closet, feeds them, r- molests them, rapes them, and ultimately disposes of their bodies at some point. Um, I've seen yeah. those cases over the years. Th- those to me are some of the most heinous people that have ever walked the planet. So somebody that commits something to that level of atrociousness to the most innocent group of people that there are children right what's going on in in the psyche of somebody like that doctor well it's very hard to generalize because you're dealing now with many different types of pathology for example somebody could be responding to uh, psychotic symptoms god told me to do it that's extremely rare but it does happen most of these cases that you're generally referring to as serial sexual murderers that type of thing these are sexually motivated most people can understand murder but it's very hard for a lot of people to wrap their arms around sexual murder. And the best way to understand that, in my view, is to look at that as a, as another paraphilia, meaning an abnormal sexual arousal pattern, where in these cases, there's a fusion of sex and aggression so that the aggressive act itself is eroticized. So that's stimulating And because the sexual instinct is so strong, that's how God made us so that the species would propagate. Once an individual commits a crime like that, it's compulsive. He wants to do it again because it's so arousing and so gratifying for him. Mm. And you say he because a vast majority, if not all, of these types of predators are males. 
That's correct. Serial sexual murderers is a male thing. Now, there are some women who have killed in a series, but the killings itself was not sexually motivated. There's a famous case in Florida, Aileen Warnes, who killed a bunch of men. She was a sex worker and had a hatred for men and basically killed her johns. That's very, very different than what we're talking about. So the serial sexual murderer, the one that comes to my mind would be a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes. The perfect case aroused by sexual activities with other men and that wasn't enough. So he's got to do then something to mutilate these people. Well, yes. I mean, it's not just sexual arousal by a, a, a sexual arousal per se. It's sexual arousal by inflicting pain. A, a, again, it's hard to understand that. Let me give you an, a, a, an example. Many, 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 almost all, of uh, serial sexual murderers engage in ritualistic or signature behavior at a crime scene. What does that mean? They go above and beyond the murder to gratify themselves sexually and leave the victim in a sexually degrading position with foreign object insertions and this sort of thing. And the reason they do it is killing alone is not psychosexually sufficient. And they need that satisfaction in some kind of sexual manner the killing it in and of itself doesn't excite them the, the right? it's like it's like ice cream it. without the hot fudge no it's no the not killing, enough the, the the killing does excite them and but they have to kill him in a very specific way the most efficient way to kill somebody is with a gun they don't kill with a gun they kill right. up close and personal ligature strangulation manual strangulation. Why? Because they want to control the individual's death because the control is what's stimulating for them. Now, sadism is certainly the infliction of pain on someone else, but more basic than inflicting pain is the control that the sadist has where the control is, where the victim's pain is one way the sadist assures himself that he is in control. And so what you'll find is they just don't choke the person and kill him. They'll choke the person and then release the pressure so that they can come to and prolong their agony, which prolongs his sexual stimulation. Wow. So talk to us, dig into that. What exactly is going on in, in these people's brains that's causing them this type of atrociousness. What what is this? Well, you you asked it in a you asked the question in a very specific way. What is going on in their brains? And the answer is we don't know exactly what's going on in their brains, but something certainly is. I would look at it this way, and I get this question all the time: What causes somebody to become a serial killer, a serial sexual murderer? Uh, and most people want to search for a watershed event in the person's life. He was abused by his parent. He, his mother rejected him. This woman did this terrible thing to him. Yes, though abuse and trauma and so on is never helpful, but that alone does not cause somebody to do what we just talked about. In my view, the, the greatest uh, weight in understanding what causes somebody to do this is a neurobiological component coupled with poor parenting and trauma and so on. But what is the neuro neurobiological component? Well, it's unknown. Is it hormonal? Is it chemical? Is it electrical? Is it brain damage? Is it a combination of factors plus 
poor parenting and trauma and so on. There, 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 in my opinion, is multiple factors that go on in somebody's background that create somebody like this. And that's why serial sexual murder has been around since pre-modern times. This is not a new phenomenon, that this is not an American phenomenon. It's always been very, very small number of people and there is no evidence at all that is that it is increasing. So my question for you then is, is do you believe then for somebody to ultimately act out in some kind of serial killing way that there has to be some form of predisposition at birth, something in the brain that's already there? Uh, yes, that's my opinion of it. Now, what that is, as I said, we don't know. Correct. Now, let me give let me give you a little further insight because what you ask is a question that most people it's on their mind. L- let me give you a little insight in this. Yeah, please. If you look at popularized mental disorders such as bipolar disorder, PTSD, addiction, and popularized sorts of crimes, stalking, and so on. You look at the number in the past 20 years, the number of peer-reviewed scientific journal articles on PTSD, bipolar disorder, um, you know, and that sort of thing. It's going to be about 50 to 70,000 articles in stalking. There's close to a thousand articles that have been done over the past 20 years. Do you know how many peer-reviewed published articles there have been on serial sexual homicide? A fraction. 21. 20 that's unbelievable 21 exactly and so the knowledge base that we have is is very limited uh the research that we do that i i do in conjunction with the fbi behavioral analysis unit is certainly trying to present scientific based evidence not pontificating from what's in news reports and talking about the things that many people don't really fully understand but actual scientifically supported research to understand this extraordinary crime that's very rare that causes enormous misery not just for the victims and their family but the community and even the country in very highly publicized cases have you ever had a chance to interview some of these serial killers that you've studied? Yes, yes. You have. Who have you interviewed? Yes. Are you allowed to talk about that? Um, well, I could tell you some names you're probably not familiar with. Um, okay. Um, James Kadadich was a famous serial killer in New Jersey. Daryl Hayes was a juvenile uh, serial killer. Um, you're probably familiar. I- I- I'll tell you another one of my cases was Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. He was uh, familiar. Exactly. They made a bunch of documentaries on him. Now, he was a contract killer. Now, that's very different than a serial sexual murderer. He said he killed over 100 people, which I never believed, but he killed a lot for money. You see, yeah, a serial killer, it literally means killing in a series. But you have to separate serial sexual murder like Ted Bundy, BTK, the Boston Strangler, this guy, um, Hurman from um, from New York, from the healthcare serial killers in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. There was Nurse Cullen who killed a bunch of people in England. There was Dr. Shipman who killed right. a bunch of people and contract killers like Kuklinski who do it for um, for uh, money. If you don't do that and you talk generically, the generalizability of what you have to say is not applicable. It's like studying mental illness and using your group schizophrenia, borderline personality and depression and anxiety disorders as one group of mentally ill. They're very, very different. 
Okay, so that's fair. They are different. But w- when you talk to these people and they all have these different depravities, is there something that you see across the board that's common in every single one of them? Um, well, you're talking about serial sexual murder now? Well, I'm talking about the ones that you've actually interviewed face to face. Well, I interviewed you- so many people. Um, you know, you, you have to go by the type of offender you're talking about. Uh, so let's take serial sexual murder or let's more, stick. Or, and that's your specialty, serial sexual murder. So, yes, let's stick to that. Yeah. Um, what they do at the crime scene is, is certainly a, a common denominator. They go above and beyond killing the person. Um, another interesting thing about serial sexual murders is they don't look that abnormal. They speak mm. very, very well. If you look at some of the interviews, including this Gilgo Beach guy, he was interviewed about a year before this uh, on architecture or, or something. Yeah, he, he looks- sat there in his office, did like a 20 minute interview, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. He looks completely normal. He was articulate. He was well groomed. His office in the background was neat and clean. He was ba- brandishing his wedding band very, very clearly. Right. And, and he was bright. And, and so you, when you look at that, that's what you're going to find. You see, what happens is many, many people think that the serial killer is somebody who has pus coming out of their eye, no teeth, dirty, disheveled. It's not true. It's not. I true. was hoping, doctor, you could say, yeah, you could tell every time. All you got to do is find that little thing. No, and and, unfortunately, and unfortunately, these people, uh, you wouldn't you would never know with so many of them. Uh, that that's right. From just uh, how would you know uh, exactly? But when, but when you're talking to them, obviously you already know that they've committed heinous crimes, so you're already in a position of knowing what they've done. But when is there something where you see you see in them a, a blank stare? Do they have? Do they not show remorse? Do they hate their? Do they all have something in common where they hate their parent or or someone that wronged them? What what's? I'm trying right. to find something. Yeah, you're not going to find something like that. Um, you know that they hate their parents. I mean, some do, some don't. Some come from substantial families. Um, other things you said. Sometimes you see it. Sometimes you don't. You're not going to find things like a stare and this sort of thing. Um, you know, I've had a very experienced police officer say to me this with with different topic, but it goes to the same issue. If we had a psychologist talking somebody down who was holding someone hostage or something like that, maybe you could come out with a phrase that'll disarm the person. No, you 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 can't. There's no magic to this. There's no um, particular stare that they give you. And, but I understand the need for people to want to hook on to that and, and see if they can come up with something for their own protection. Right. Because. And you hear from so many women, uh, particularly on these dating sites, this, you know, um, murderme.com, these sorts of things. How do I know if I if I meet somebody on a website, he's not a serial killer? Well, it's the same as if you meet a a stranger at a bar and talk to them for a while, um, which, you know, used to be the in in my generation. That's the way a lot of people met met. Um, The the answer is you don't You, you, you don't know. So use your instincts. That's why God gave you instincts and um, use your head. But to say all that, let me say this uh, also for people should not be afraid because murder is the least common crime. Sexual murder is less than 1% of all murder. Serial sexual murder is a fraction of that 1%. So the likelihood that you're going to be a victim 
of a serial sexual murder, you have a better chance of winning the lottery. Right. But if you happen to be one of those Gilgo Beach well, victims, unfortunately, of, of there course. you go. You want it. Of course. I'll tell you uh, one interesting thing you mentioned about the Gilgo Beach thing that goes to this whole issue. Um, I, I did a, a TV interview on, on this case a, a week or so ago, and they showed a clip of an interview of a neighbor uh, who was, a, I think, a fireman. And he said something very interesting in his interview. He said that um, Hureman was his neighbor and was staring in a very, un, uh, very, uh, um, dis, uh, very disturbing way towards his wife, who was sunbathing, attractive woman, and so on. And eventually, he went and talked to Hureman and told him to cut it out. So the issue then is, why didn't Hureman, who is obviously in some way obsessed with the woman, abduct her and kill her? And the answer is. He's way too forensically aware. That is too high risk for him to get apprehended. As soon as his wife turns up dead, the neighbor's going to say, hey, this guy was doing it. And then he's going to, that's how you get caught. But somebody like Hureman, who does he, who does he um, uh, victimize? Sex workers. Why? The hardest thing for a serial sexual murderer is the abduction. How do you get a woman to go with you? That, that's not so simple. But with a sex worker, the abduction problem is eliminated because they go with anybody. Take their clothes off, go with strangers. That's part of the job description. And so, and when you're looking for the person, most people don't know who their real names are. And they're killed in New York. They may be from Pennsylvania. They could be from California. They could be anywhere. So it's very, very difficult in those cases. That's an interesting point you bring up, Doctor, is the the fact that he the the neighbor abduction and killing would be way too high risk for him. Exactly. So my question for you then, and this again, these are hypotheticals. We don't know for sure. But do you believe that there are a much larger population of people out there who would have the desire to act in a sexual murder predatory type way if it weren't for all these I might get caught? Like, do you believe that there's people out there that are a lot of them that are predisposed that are fighting these demons every day? Uh, that's a great question. Let me answer it this way. Somebody doesn't wake up one day and say to themselves, I think I'm going to go out and kill five women. That sounds like a good idea. No, no. it begins 10, 15, 20 years earlier in the offender's mind, in his fantasies. And he harbors these disturbed fantasies for many years. And then he then he strikes out. The number of individuals who harbor these very perverse fantasies is much, much greater than the very small number that actually act out. For in, in regular human sexuality, there's many, many people that harbor all kinds of sexual fantasies that they keep to themselves and don't share with their partner because they're afraid if I say that to my partner, she's going to say, what are you, crazy? I'm not doing that. You need to see a doctor. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right. And so they keep it to themselves. In, in, in the cases of those who do act out, it, 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 it's, the, it's really an interesting question. And what is found is there's usually two things um, that trigger it, a loss of some sort. And for a man, it's a loss of a relationship or a loss of a job. And those things seem to trigger the individual to act out, going from fantasy to actually acting it out. Wow. Do, do serial sexual predators ever show remorse? 
or is it very rare? It's it's very, very rare that they show remorse. They show a lot of remorse for getting caught. That's for sure. And, um, you know, uh, what they tell you, 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 you have, you know, l- let me say it this way. This may come as a shock to your audience, but criminal defendants don't always tell the truth. They lie. They lie all the time. So you can't go by what they say. They say all kinds of things to help mitigate their sentence and, 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 and so on. Um, but lying when confronted with wrongdoing is a fundamental part of human nature, not just with sexual murderers, but with all criminals. It's so fundamental that it's in the Bible. In Genesis, right in the beginning, when God asked Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain lied to God. He said, I know not. I'm not my brother's keeper. And so law enforcement and all the professionals should not be surprised when when defendants lie to you. I My position is I'll accept what they say, but it has to be corroborated because they lie so much. Do you believe it, a serial killer of any type can be rehabilitated into society? That would not be my view. That would not be my view. And, and the reason I say that is because it's part of their psychology. Anytime you have a crime that's sexually motivated, it doesn't have to be murder, some non-burglary, uh, some burglaries are sexually motivated, some arsons, fire setting is sexually motivated. Anytime that's part of the person's psychology, the likelihood of them doing it again, in my opinion, is very, very high. Mm. So in your opinion, then, are you of the stance that if somebody commits a sexually motivated crime, they should spend the rest of their life behind bars? Uh, no, no, no. But sexually motivated murder is a little bit different than other types of sexually motivated crimes. But what I'll, what I'll say is this. Um some people say, well, it, it's compulsive and re- it's it's a compulsion. They can't help themselves. That's been brought up a number of times. And, and it is compulsive. But in any of these murder cases or sex crimes cases, let it ask always ask yourself a question. Would he have abducted the victim if there was a police officer standing next to him? And the answer is no. So he can control it. But right. he chooses. But he chooses not to control it. Mm. And it's got to be extremely hard for these folks to plea insanity because they're they are meticulous in their in their planning yes it's not hard for them to do it well they could plea it but if they're gonna who's gonna say yeah you're right you're insane all right well very rare very rare but you have to understand it from a defense attorney's perspective these are not whodunit cases um if if it's if it's questionable as to who he did it the dna was compromised the evidence was compromised and all sorts of things then the attorney's going to challenge the evidence but if it's no longer who done it case the attorney only has his state of mind to go on for a defense and can you get somebody to say that they uh, were insane sure you can sure, sure. Of, of course you can unfortunately you can get some i can get you somebody to say just about anything um yes but does does a jury accept it almost never almost never of all the uh, serial killers that you've studied is there one that stands out above the others that you just have the most difficult time trying to comprehend and if so who is it um I, I I just can't say one that stands out more than others. I mean, there's like when some... you think of a guy like Ted Bundy, I mean, that well, 
a guy like Ted Bundy, isn't that fascinating that this guy was able to live amongst us in such a normal, high, you know, law school, those kind of things uh, as, a, so as a productive member of society? Without a doubt. And so was Herman living with us and BTK, Dennis Rader, was a member of law enforcement and all the rest. I would say one of the most perverse cases in the annals of crime was, um, well, certainly Ed Gein was one. And um, I can't remember the guy's name from New York. It's an old case. Um, it just, it slips my mind now, but it was uh, another notorious case because of the way they just behaved in such a cruel fashion. And Ed Gein was taking skin off people and, and fashioning mm. chairs with them, you know, and this sort of thing. Let me ask you this one. I'm, I'm in Cleveland, uh, doctor, and we've had some notorious folks in, in the cities of Cleveland over the years. One that comes to mind was Anthony Sowell who was clearly a serial killer, had a bunch of women's bodies in his house. And then another one that comes to mind is Ariel Castro, who we don't believe ever killed anybody, but he kept those three girls locked up for over a decade in his house. Right. And again, I would assume that the victims were probably exposed to very similar types of behavior. The only difference is Ariel didn't act out and kill anybody. So what do you think would be the difference in psyche between a guy like Sowell and a guy like Castro? Um, Castro, I'm not familiar with the case that that much, but that type of captivity and bondage and sadism is something is very, very interesting. Let me let me give you this as as a, a point of reference. About half of all serial sexual murderers have no arrest record, have no arrest record. Those individuals, the subgroup who are particularly sadistic and do things like captivity and bondage and these sorts of things, about 25% of them do have an arrest record and it's for something you would not be you wouldn't think of it's for financial crimes mm. money laundering uh forgery check forgery uh robbery and this sort of thing it's counterintuitive um also uh, only about 25% of serial sexual murderers penetrate their victims their murder victims at the crime scene but those who do penetrate their victims, about 85% of them have a his, have an arrest record for, for rape and sexual assault. So a serial sexual predator, uh, only one out of four times is actually doing committing penetration. That, yeah, exactly. Why is that? Because the violence takes the place of it. The violence itself is sexually arousing and sexually stimulating. Mm, this is such uh, a dis- dark and, and disturbing world that you're living in on a daily basis. And uh, one of the things that you've also been privy to and that you've become a part of is uh, is the Senate task force, uh, or I'm sorry, the FBI Behavioral Science Unit. Talk to us about what you're doing with the, the, the FBI. Well, for, oh, for just about 20 years now, maybe a little bit over 20 years, we have a major research project with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit down at Quantico studying extraordinary crimes. We've studied serial sexual murder, uh, non-serial sexual murder, serial rape, single victim rape, bias homicide, suicide by cop, domestic homicide, and all the rest. And we've published some very interesting papers on all of this. And what are you? What's the what's the hope? What what's your ultimate mission and goal that, with that with that uh body? To well, well, to understand these cases and to help in an investigation. Let me give you a couple of examples uh, of some of our research and some of our findings. Yes, please. 
Sure. If you or any of your viewers want to look at this, if you can get these articles. They're all in peer-reviewed journals. One, if you put in your search search bar, ritual and signature in serial sexual homicide. It was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and Law. That'll come up. And um, it was the it's the only empirical study, empirical now, of ritualistic and signature behavior. That's what they do at a crime scene above and beyond what's necessary to kill the person. You know, and anyway, what shocked us most, which we didn't expect, is that in a ser- in a series, let's say a guy kills five women with one victim, he will do something very, very different with that victim that he didn't do with the other four. For example, he kills five women, four of them, he dumps the bodies nude with nothing on just dumps the bodies but with one victim he cuts their breasts off he cuts their eyes out he shoves something in them and so they experiment at a crime scene now you could be an experienced homicide detective with 30 years experience and you look at this and say that guy who cut her breasts off and uh, he that's a different guy that's not the one who left the victims just dumped that's not true Because we found in 70% of the cases, the offender will experiment at a crime scene and do something with one victim that they didn't do with others in their series. And then we asked the question, well, where do they do it in their series? In the beginning, the middle, or the end? We thought it would be the end. After they gain more experience, more comfort, then they would experiment. Nope. One third do it in the beginning, one third in the middle, and one third at the end. Another study I think you'll find interesting is if you put in your search bar, rapid sequence serial sexual homicide, uh, that should come up as well. And here we studied, it's a very simple study that was never done before, the time period between murders, because we learned from Hannibal Lecter and the movies that when one of these offenders kill, they deliberate for an extended period of time, um, six months to a year to elude law enforcement, and then they strike again, right? That, that's what we know. Well, we looked at the time period. Half of the uh, serial sexual murders kill more than two weeks between murders. So that's half of them. But half of them kill some multiple victims the same day at different times in different locations. They kill in a spree-like fashion. There's another group that kill in rapid sequence clusters. They kill one or two victims. And then there's a period of time in between, three, four, five. And then there's another period of time in between. And uh, the question is, why do they do that? And I I don't know the reason, but I have what I think is a good explanation. I think as an exemplar to understand that, take a look at some mental disorders that have rapid symptom expression. For example, some people are alcoholic, but another group of alcoholics go on binge drinking. Some people are pathological gamblers. Some group go on gambling binges. Some people have eating disorders. Some go on burging and pinging, uh, um, purging, binging and purging binges. So I'm not in any way equating eating disorders and gambling so on with sexual murder, but it's a way to look at this as an exemplar to try to understand what exactly is going on here. The last study, the last study I'll give you uh, for those interested is um, 
uh, foreign object insertions in sexual homicide, shoving things in people. And you often see this at a crime scene. The victim has their legs spread open and a baseball bat is shoved something in. When I started this research and my colleagues as well, we thought that they would basically be what you see in crime scene photos, a pole is shoved in them, that type of thing. What we found is, again, you have to do the research. 60 per, over 60% of the objects inserted were found by the medical examiner during autopsy. It wasn't visible at the crime scene. And it wasn't just phallic-like objects. It was shirts, socks, underwear, ketchup, Ovaltine mix, rags, a cloth, an umbrella, a chair leg, cigarettes, cigarettes, and all the rest. Oh. So uh, you ask what our research is, is doing. We're trying to understand this very extraordinary crime from a scientific basis, not just from, you know, the movies and, you know, and, and this sort of thing. Yes, this is very complicated, very complex. Not one size fits all. Clearly not one size fits all. Exactly. You believe exactly. you believe serial killer. You got like a guy like uh, what's his name? Herman. Do you believe that a sex uh, a serial killer is able to feel love? Let me say this. Many serial sexual murderers have been married with children. And if you speak to their wives, they'll say he was a good father. He was, a, you know, he was a fairly good husband. And so many of the wives, I'm not saying all of them, so many of them said, I thought something guy was weird. I mean, there was always something about him, but they I, but they'll say, I never suspected he's going around killing people because that's such an extraordinary thing to think about. Does a guy and like so, that would that guy like that feel sadness? Should one of his should one of his children have been killed? I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. Remember. They're more like us than they're different. These are human beings. They're more like us than they're different. It's fascinating. It, it really These are is. human beings. These are human yeah. beings who have emotions and feelings. It's almost like they're so depraved. There's something to me. You, you have to be born with something. Wouldn't yeah. it be nice? You'd be a billionaire if you knew what that something was, doctor. Yes, that 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 is for sure. But let me let me say this though, as a general principle, don't use Hannibal Lecter as an example of a serial sexual murderer because he's not. You know, the American people want their serial killers to be evil geniuses with IQs of 160 that speak five languages, including Aramaic, that are connoisseurs of fine wine, like Hannibal Lecter, and they're not. Those guys like um, uh, uh, Herman and uh, Bundy and uh, Dennis Rader, those are outliers. Most of these guys are unemployed, unskilled, and all the rest. So they're not Hannibal Lecter by any means. We're getting close to finishing up. When you speak of some of these notorious serial killers, one that comes to mind that I was looking at that is, is so astonishing that they never found was Jack the Ripper. Right. What an interesting, bizarre set of circumstances where where these guys not they not only get the thrill of killing. Now again, this might not have been sexual, but the thrill of killing, but then the thrill of of taunting everybody and saying, "Ha ha ha! You can't catch me." Exactly, and uh, a lot of serial killers copied Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Um, 
how he got his name was he wrote uh, letters to the meat to the press saying, "I am down on whores and shan't quit ripping them." That's that's how he got his name, mm-hmm. and others BTK did the same thing as well. You mentioned one other thing; I, it came to mind now. The name of one of the most perverse sexual murderers, serial sexual murderers of all time, was a New York case. A guy named Albert Fish, and uh, Fish. Uh, abducted a 12-year-old girl in New York. Her name was Grace Bud, mm-hmm. and uh, not only killed her, but chopped the body up and ate her in a stew with potatoes and vegetables and this sort of thing over a 10-day period. And wow. he was a- and he looks like a disturbing guy. Holy cow. I just uh, pulled him up. Hamilton Howard Albert Fish. Uh, Albert Fish. He looks like a, a college professor, actually. Uh, well, he he's, got, he's got your mustache, but... Uh... <laughs> There you he go. definitely doesn't have he doesn't have your friendly looking demeanor, at least in the picture I'm looking at. But I'll, I'll say one thing. He was not caught easily. And what he did after a period of time, he wrote a horrible letter. It's in my book, my book, Sexual Murder, Catathymic and Compulsive Homicides to Mrs. Uh, to, to Mrs. Bud and put in there material that the police um, kept back. And that's how they got him. And one thing we're running out, I know we're running out of time, but I'll, I'll leave your audience with one thing. Law enforcement will never give up, never, whether it's 10 years, 20, 30 years. I never thought they would catch the Golden State Killer from California, which is back in the and I, I said publicly in the media, I don't think you're going to get him because I thought he was being a 70s now and dead. They got him. Same with Huron. You, you never think they're going to, and they get him. Same with that case in Idaho, where everyone said they were the Keystone cops and so on. No, they weren't at all. And same with Fish. They got him. And um that's important yeah. to know as well. Uh, it's, there, there's always hope. And with the, the continued evolution of technology and everything else, it, it, you would hope that these people all face justice. Hey, uh, uh, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger, you mentioned your book. We'll make sure we link that in the show notes. Where else do you want people to find you? Website, social media, anything like that? No, no I don't do social media or websites. But if you want to read any, you want to take any of my books, go to Amazon. Beautiful. Uh, Amazon is, I have uh, 12 books. And so, 12 um, books. Wow. It's not Very all nice. on sexual murder, it's on other types <laughs> of behavior. And so, um, but you can take a look at that. My last question for you, and we'll make sure we link that up in the show notes and, and we'll, we'll lead people to where they need to go. Um, last question for you. This is a brutal line of work that you're in. I mean, it takes a special kind of person to be doing this day in and day out and, and being exposed to all these negative, nasty things that very few of us know know much about um when it gets quiet in your own personal life when the lights go out and you're by yourself do you have to battle demons of you know all this negativity and if so, no. how do you manage all this? No, I, I, I get that question all the time. And the answer is no, I don't. But it's really no different than a prosecutor, a, a career prosecutor has handled murder case after murder case, someone from child protection services that deal with all this abuse day in and day out, law enforcement officers that deal with this, uh, EMTs and all, all of the rest. 
Um, so no, I look, one of the, what I do is also, I look at these cases as interesting cases, you know, from a, from a, a scientific point of view. And that's one way you can distance yourself from it as well. The only type of case that really bothers me that I, I, I take a pass on is when children were uh, killed. It's just, um, you know, I just take a pass on that and uh, which is fine. And again, what I tell my students and my colleagues, if there's a case that for some reason, personal or otherwise, you don't want to get involved in, take a pass. Because if you don't, you could screw it up because your own anger could emerge and you'll defeat your purpose. The John Jay College of Criminal Justice professor. Hey, uh, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Appreciate your time. Thank you.